You're listening to audio from Plank Grove Harvest Church located in Crossville, Tennessee. If you'd like more information about our church and its various ministries, please visit our website at www.plankgroveharvest.org. All right, so if you've got your Bible, we are back in 1 Corinthians. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have missed a few chapters. We've moved around a little bit. I'm trying to get us through 1 Corinthians, so we, we're, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 13, and I thought, man, this is a great chapter. I'm really excited to talk about it. And then I started studying it, and I started seeing how flawed I am and how broken I am, and it wasn't as enjoyable as I thought it was going to be preparing this sermon. It was, it was like, uh, man, this love thing, there's a lot more to it, and uh, it's easy to kind of talk about superficially but when you really start drilling into it um it's tough so so far we've looked at paul in the church of corinth he's written this letter to this church in corinth and then the first 12 chapters we've seen paul he starts by telling them that you've got to start with jesus you've got to keep the main thing the main thing you've got to make jesus the main thing you've got to make him your foundation you've got to build upon that foundation from there and so in the last several chapters we have seen him focus in on several issues from sexual immorality to food offered to idols, to taking the Lord's Supper in an incorrect way. And so that brings us to this chapter 13. And in chapter 13, we see one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible, we, and it's called the love chapter. And it's a passage that is often read at weddings and funerals, um, but I don't think most of us realize the potency of this passage because it is so often read out of context. And in the context in which it's written. So what we see here in is chapter 13 is sandwiched in between Paul's explanation of spiritual gifts in chapter 12 and his exhortations about the gifts and prophecies and tongues in chapter 14. And so this chapter, it has huge ramifications for understanding what it means to love the body of Christ, which is called the church, and specifically the local church, our local church. So my hope is that in studying this passage that you and I and, and us together will be marked by this kind of love. One commentary guy, one writer, he said this, it is clear that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 must be studied in the context of the rest of Paul's letter to the church of Corinth. Otherwise, it remains mere words, noble, even ennobling, but only words. But when applied to a local church, this chapter becomes dynamite for it uncovers all the weaknesses, gaps, failures, and sins in any Christian community. Another writer says, the full impact and depth of the truth here cannot be discovered in isolation. Much of the power and even much of the purpose and beauty is missed when this passage is studied and applied out of context, which is, it's applied to the local church. And so... <laughs> this is a little bit uh, out of the norm, uh, but something I want to try for us to do today is, is memorize a little bit of this scripture as we're going through it. And uh, you can throw rocks at me later. Uh, <laughs> it's, but I, I think it's important that as we study scripture that we, we work to really in internalize it and to reflect on it and use it to evaluate our lives individually and our lives together. And so as we pray for our church and, and for our, our family here, 
uh, we, we really think about love and, and what it really means. And uh, so we're going to read this whole text, chapter 13, uh, and we're going to consider that. And then we're going to focus in on verses 4 through 7. And, and that's where I want to kind of memorize, uh, look at what it says there and memorize and commit that to heart. And my hope is that we'll walk away from this time together as a church family with these words about loving deeply impressed upon our hearts. And, and so it's going to take a little bit of work. And uh, I, I hope we're up for it this morning. So uh, without further ado, let's look at chapter 13. And I'm going to start in verse 1 and read the whole chapter. So follow along with me, if you will. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic, prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So again, we must understand this text within its context. So consider these words from the perspective of this church in Corinth. Uh, here we have a people, based on what we see in, in chapters 12 and 14, the surrounding chapters, we actually see that they were gifted spiritually. They're gifted spiritually. And they saw those gifts as a sign of their spiritual, uh, spirituality. Amid all their focuses on their spiritual gifts, per, uh, particularly these sensational gifts like uh, prophecy and tongues, which Paul's going to address here later on in the next chapter, they were losing sight of what was most important, what was clearly most important. And so if you look at how love is described in verses 4 through 7 and think about all that we've read from, uh, throughout the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians, you realize that this is not just a random list of characteristics of love. Instead, it's a direct rebuke of a lack of love in specific ways at Corinth. You see, the Christians at Corinth were impatient and unkind towards each other. It says there, love is patient and kind. Well, when we look at 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, we see that they were filled with jealousy for one another. They were puffed up and proud. They were boasting in men. In, in chapter 5, we see that they rejoiced in evil. In, in chapter 6, we saw that they were taking each other to court. Chapter 8, they were insisting on their own way, even if it caused others to stumble. In chapters uh, 11, it says that they were dressing the way they wanted to dress and praying the way they wanted to pray, and they were rude and they were shameful. In chapter uh, 
second half of chapter 11, they were taking the Lord's uh, Supper in a very selfish way. And chapter 12, they were com- uh, competing over who was the most spiritually gifted. Paul pauses. He's, he's, he's talking through verse, or chapter 12 and telling them all this. And then he pauses at this point when he's talking about spiritual gifts and he sums up the whole letter by saying, hey, you guys are missing the point. Specifically, when it comes to spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 13 was written down at this point, at this place in this letter, to show that spiritual gifts are significant, but love is supreme. Spiritual gifts are significant, but love is supreme. He immediately starts by addressing the gifts that they were prone to boast in, like speaking in tongues, which they thought virtually made them equal to angels, Uh, prophetic powers, gifts of knowledge and faith that move mountains, even... Uh, great sacrifices in their lives with their uh, possessions. But Paul says, hey, none of that matters apart from love. Apart from love, none of that matters. So follow this. This is, this is a big statement. Love is absolutely, absolutely necessary, and apart from it, nothing in the Christian life matters. Nothing. Back to Verse 1, if I speak in tongues of angels but have not love, I am just in an annoying noise. If I know and speak the mysteries of heaven, if I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, listen to the end of verse 2 here. It says, it's not just these, are, these gifts are nothing. He says, I am nothing. At the end of verse 2, he says, I am nothing. The Bible is not just saying here that apart from love, spiritual gifts are worthless. The Bible is saying apart from love, even Paul says, I'm worthless. I'm nothing apart from love. Nothing I do matters. Verse 3 says, I gain nothing even if I give away everything I have to the poor. Uh, the poor. Even if I sacrifice my very life, if I do it without love, it's worth nothing. I mean, if we take this text and apply it to the things that we value even in our church, we realize those implications, right? Like for me personally, if I make this personal, if I get up here and preach God's word with power and zeal and passion, but I don't have any love, then I'm just making noise. If we have Bible knowledge and and theological training, but we don't have love, then we're wasting time. If we do small groups or gather together to pray and worship, but we don't do it in love, it it means nothing. Even if we're just radical in our giving and going, if if we do foster care and adoption, and if we're involved in ministries across the county and across the globe, if we don't start with love, we miss the entire point. You see, love is absolutely necessary, and apart from it, in the Christian life, Nothing matters. So it's this shattering conclusion here. We are, I am, nothing without love. No matter how much we do or say, without love we're nothing. And this doesn't mean that all these things aren't good. They're very good. Preaching and learning and gathering and giving and going, all these things are really good, but they're good when done in the context of love. Paul is saying, use your gifts and give sacrificially uh, of your 
uh, of your possessions and your very lives, but do it in the context of love. You'll notice that right after this chapter, in chapter 14, it starts off with this. He says, pursue love. And in that context, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts. It also says when he's ending uh, chapter 12, at the end of chapter 12, it says, uh, when he's talking about spiritual gifts, now I shall show you a more excellent way. And the translation there is, I want to pause and remind you of something that's not just a specific gift for a few people, but something that's an overall way of life for all of us. And that's love. Love is literally the way of life in the church. Uh, and that's what they're missing. And that's what Paul's pointing out to them. So note, we should know that these gifts, that they're significant. They are significant. But love is more supreme. He goes on to the last part uh, of this chapter and uh, to say that the spiritual gifts are temporal, but love is eternal. In verses 8 through 13, uh, it says this, um, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when, we, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, uh, I spoke and acted like a child. I reasoned like a child. And when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part what I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So here we see he uses two illustrations, one of a child growing into adulthood and, and one of uh, looking into a mirror instead of seeing face to face. And the purpose of both of these illustrations, illustrations is to show uh, that the spiritual gifts are temporary. Um, it's not to say that spiritual gifts are childish or anything like that. Uh, it's just that they're for an appropriate time. And uh, it's just like having... Young kids like uh, seeing Quinn and Moses learn to crawl and to walk, and now Moses is being potty trained, you know. And uh, that's totally appropriate for a three year old to be potty trained. But if he gets to 30 years old and he's still potty training, we got a problem. <laughs> Big problem. And that's, it, there's a whole host of other things that he's going through at three years old that aren't appropriate at 30. And Paul's saying to the church at Corinth, hey, you think you're fully mature now, but you're just starting to crawl. You're just starting these, these, these small things. This is just temporary. Uh, when you've not, reached, you've not reached adulthood, you're still a crawler. And so these, these gifts and their use in the church are going to fade away. The question is why? And the, the second illustration answers it. it says, now we see and know and learn and speak about God indirectly. And it's not that what we prophesy or pray or speak is untrue in any way. It's just incomplete. We're looking forward to the day when we see Christ face to face and we truly know what he is and who he is without any sin or without any error in us. And these gifts will no longer be necessary. In this way, prophecies will pass away, tongues will cease. But what will remain? Love. See, love never ends. Spiritual gifts are temporary but love is eternal. So what is the nature of love in our church, in the church? What Paul does in the, in the middle is he gives us not so much a definition of what love is, but he gives us a description of the way it looks in the church. And I just want to give you a couple of truths that characterize love in a general 
away. And, and then I want us to reflect on love in specific ways. So another commentary said this, studying 1 Corinthians 13 is like taking apart a flower. Part of its beauty is lost when the components are separated. So before we carefully dissect this flower, I want us to see it as a whole. Uh, and when we step back and look at verses 4 through 7, I want you to see two primary characteristics of love. And the first is that love is essentially selfish, uh, or selfless, I'm sorry. Love is essentially selfless. You see, the lack of love at Corinth could be traced back to selfishness. As you read through verses 4 through 7, you begin to realize that according to this chapter, the opposite of love is not hate. It's not hate. Instead, it's pride. It's arrogance. It's boasting. It's seeking one's own way. So to love like this, to love in a Christian way, you have to die to self. You have to realize that with, in ourselves, we just have this sin nature, that, pri- that we prioritize self. We don't like to think uh, about things that when they don't go our way. We don't like when people hurt us. We don't like when people irritate us. We don't like it when people think and, and don't speak well of us. We like it when others bring pleasure to us. In fact, that often t- is what that, that basically motivates what our love is for other people. That's the way the world view is in terms of warm feelings, desires, even romance. Many times when we say I love you, what we really mean is I love me and I want you. And our love for others is actually selfish in nature. And this kind of love, this biblical love, this Christian love, it's essentially selfless, meaning it's, in its essence, it is selfless. It is patient when patience isn't deserved. It is kind when kindness is difficult. It doesn't envy or boast because it is not focused on what I have and who I am, but on what you have and who you are. It insists on the other's way, not our own way. Now, this doesn't mean that love doesn't want to be happy. No, there's a difference in that. Love seeks its happiness in, in the good of others. That's the difference. It seeks its joy in the good of others to the glory of God. Love does not say the secret to happiness is finding it in myself. Love says the secret to happiness, to joy, is dying to self and laying down my life for the good of others to the glory of God. Second thing is that love is always active. Love is essentially uh, selfless, but love is always active. The Bible doesn't use adjectives here to describe love. It uses verbs uh, to describe the action of love. It uses 15, 15 of them to be exact. The picture here is not words and ideas, but deeds and actions. Love does this. Love does that. Love does not do this. Love does not do that. The overall picture is clear. It is not conveyed by words as much it is, as it is shown by behavior. You see, Paul has not set out to define love here. He has set out to apply love in present continuous uh, verbs, showing the ongoing behavior and, and the habits of people who love. And so love is always active. So we come to the marks of love in the Christian and what it means us as a Christian. What does love mean to us? We phrase it, I phrase it this way because After all, this is what Jesus said should mark us as Christians. 
Listen to this, John 13, 35. This is Jesus speaking. By this will people know that you are my disciples if you love one another. That's a big statement. Jesus says, selfless, active love will be the mark of my disciples to me in the world. It will be the fruit of your life in me, the mark of the Spirit's work in you. So we need to evaluate our lives and our relationships with one another according to these characteristics of love. We need to ask, are these characteristics evident in our relationships in this church, with one another, with small group members, and with people sitting around us? And then we also need to ask, how about my love for my spouse, for my children, for my friends, for my coworkers, and my neighbors? And so this is where we're going to start memorizing, not just for the sake of memorization, but for the sake of internalizing and for reflection and, and meditation, in a sense. So um, let's just simply walk through verses 4 through 7 together and impress these words on our minds and in our hearts. And uh, I just hope that we humbly consider them in our hearts and our lives. So let's start with the first three words. I'm going to say them, uh, and then you can repeat after me. Um, it's this, love is patient. Can you say that with me? Love is patient. As we say this, it begs the question that we ask of ourselves. Am I patient with others? Are you patient with others? Am I patient with people in the church? Am I patient with the people in my home? Am I patient with the people at work? The word, the word means not to just wait for others, but even to endure in, uh, injury from others without seeking retaliation towards them. Are you willing to be inconvenienced, annoyed, even hurt by others over and over again without growing upset and angry? Goes on to say, love is patient and kind. Say that with me. Love is patient and kind. So are you kind to others? This is not just passive endurance uh, of others, but... Uh, active God goodness towards others? Do you actively work to, for the welfare of others in this church, in your home, with your wife, with your husband, with your children, with your parents, at your work, where you live? Are you seeking the good of others? Is this how you approach this gathering today? Is this how you approach your gathering with your small group? Uh, not in terms of what you might get, but what you might give. When you look at people around you, are you proactively working to show kindness to them. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Say that one with me. Love does not envy or boast. Now let's put it all together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. Envy. Are you envious of others? Are you prone to compare yourself with others, always thinking this person or that person has it all figured out? I wish I had what they had, or even I wish they didn't have what they have. Envy or jealousy is no minor offense. It's no minor offense. Remember, it was Eve's envy of God wanting what he has to know what he knows that brought about sin in the world. Immediately on the heels of that, it was Cain's envy that led to the murder of his brother. Not long after that, it was Joseph's brother's envy that led them to sell Joseph into slavery. 
Talking about jealousy, Proverbs 27, 4 says this, Wrath is fierce and anger is a flood, but who can stand before jealousy? Likewise, James 3, 14 through 16 says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish selfish ambition in your heart, this is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfishness ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. So without question, envy can be one of the hardest battles that we fight in Christian life, in Christian community. It, because there's always someone who has something that we don't, who is better at something than we are. Consider ways that envy has affected you and others around you. Next, love does not envy or boast. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. So, do we boast about what we have? This is the opposite of jealousy. This is the uh, wanting, basically, essentially making others jealous of what we have. So, do we envy? Do we boast? Next is, it is not arrogant or rude. Say that with me. It is not arrogant or rude. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Are you arrogant before others? The word for boasting here literally means to be a bragger or a windbag. And the word for arrogant here is to be puffed up by ourselves. Sometimes it's that overt in our lives or others' lives, but oftentimes it's, it's more subtle. We all like to be made much of, to be admired. We like when people notice our successes, and we like when people miss our failures. So we minimize our failures and we maximize our successes in others' eyes in subtle ways. We turn conversations in ways that make us look better, in ways that draw attention to good things about us and cover over bad things about us. In our core, we have a deep level of concern for ourselves before others. So the question is, are you arrogant, even in subtle ways, before others? Next, are you rude to others? Saying shameful things or acting in improper uh, ways? See, the point here at Corinth, simply because you have the right to do something, should you do it? regardless of how it may affect the people around you. I have the right to eat these foods, the church members uh, said in in chapter 8. I have the right not to wear a head covering, the women said in chapter 11. Just because someone else doesn't like it doesn't mean I shouldn't do it. To be rude is is to disregard others when considering something we say or do. It is the very opposite of kindness, which continually regards others with what we do or what we say, always considering how we are to act and how our actions may affect someone else. Love is not rude. So let's review. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Say that with me. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Now the next part says this. It does not insist on its own way. Say that one with me. It does not insist on its own way. And then Paul goes on to say, it is not 
irritable or resentful. Say that with me. It is not irritable or resentful. Now just this, these two parts together, uh, stating insisting on its own way, it doesn't insist on its own way. It is not irritable and, or resentful. Do you want things your own way? Are you irritable when things don't go your way? This was the climax, uh, climax of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. When he came to the end of Corinthians 10, he said, I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of man, that they may be saved. This is love, not seeking my own way and not being irritated when things don't go my way. This is so hard. I know I'm not alone in this. This is so hard, isn't it? It's our natural flesh. One preacher said this, by nature, none of us like to be interrupted when things are going well. We do not like delays in our plans. We all have a strong craving for a trouble-free life, and we tend to get irritated when our best laid plans go awry. We don't like traffic tie-ups on the freeway when we have an appointment. We don't like overheated cars on vacation. We don't like for babies to cry through the night. We don't like checks to get lost in the mail. We like it when, when life flows according to plan and pleasure. And when it doesn't, our nature is provoked to complain and grumble and mum, uh, murmur, to be angry and critical. It's like this guy knows me. Any sign of a temper is a signal of a lack of love. Man, I told you I didn't like studying this. Any fits of anger are uncovering roots of pride. Now, the Bible is not talking about a righteous anger here that hates sin in the way that God hates sin. That is biblically correct. No, the Bible here is talking about our reaction when our plans are interrupted or our feelings are offended or when we're... uh, we react in an irrational or frustration, uh, a frustrated way, and, and uh, we put our priority on ourselves rather than others, and we betray the patience that God has called us to have with others. So are you irritable? Is there evidence of anger towards other or a temper with others? Another preacher said, you may say it's no big deal when you lose your temper because it's only over in a few minutes. The same preacher pointed out, so is a nuclear bomb. If we're not careful, this irritability easily leads to resentment. Love is not irritable or resentful. Do you keep any record of others' wrongs? The wording is literally to keep a book of evil or tab on those who have done wrong to you. The Bible says love does not keep an account of offense, always ready to bring them up to build a case against somebody. This resentment brings and breeds unforgiveness and builds bitterness in our hearts that not only is hurtful towards others, but is harmful to ourselves. It's been said that harboring bitterness in your heart is like drinking poison and waiting for someone else to die. It kills you. Love is not resentful. So we're halfway through these verses. (laughs) All right. Let's try to start from the beginning. I'll, I'll say them. Again, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own weight. It is not irritable or resentful. Now verse 6, 
says this, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Can you say that one with me? It does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Do you find any pleasure when others do wrong? Do you rejoice in any way over wrongdoing? Now, I'm sure if we were to answer this question without really thinking about it, we're like, no, I would never do that. That's, that's wrong. We would never do that. Of course, I don't rejoice over other people's wrongdoing. But I want you to stop for a second and think about someone you really don't like. Maybe it's somebody you know really well, or maybe it's someone you know only from a distance. This could be a coworker down the, uh, that drives you nuts, or it could be the president of the United States, or anyone in between. Are you prone to experience any kind of pleasure when that person fails? When the person fails, are you prone to think, I knew it, it serves them right, and we rejoice in the wrongdoing? Or consider someone who has deeply offended you. Are you prone to wish evil upon them? Are you glad when evil befalls them? Or are you prone to eagerly pass on news of evil in others? This is the essence of gossip, isn't it? It, It's the sick tendency to share unfavorable facts and falsehoods about other people, literally gloating over their sins and shortcomings, all the while disguising our own troubles. So love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Do you experience only delight when others do right? You see how all of these are tied together? When, when you envy someone, you rejoice when they lose something or something goes wrong. It makes you feel better. Yet, if something goes right, and maybe that uh, which you have, uh, that you want, they have more of, then you get more frustrated. Instead of rejoicing with them, you're all the more envious towards them. You see those, this web of contention that's, that's here? Patience with others and kindness towards others both lead to rejoicing in righteousness and truth in others. So do you experience only delight, not envy, not resentment when others do right? So we're almost, we're almost done. I'm going to say it again. Love is patient and kind. It does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. The final four phrases are this. um, Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Can you say that with me? Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. This is tough. It's tough to hear this. It's tough to say it. Do you tire of support for others? This goes back to the patience that this passage started with. Love bears all things. Love bears with others, protecting them, providing for them, caring for them, feeling their pain, and persevering with them in patience. Love bears all things. It never tires of support for others. Do we hold on to faith for others? There are days for all of us when faith is hard to come by and we need people to have faith for us. We need people who love us enough to stand in the gap, believing and trusting in God's grace 
and holding on to faith for us. Love believes all things. It holds on to faith. Do you lose hope for others? You hear these phrases and you can't help but think back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 where Paul uh, commands the church to excommunicate a member that actually, that, uh, to actually, actually remove the member from the church because of unrepentant sin. And you hear that and you might be tempted to think, well, that's, what's loving about that? What's loving about that? Isn't that giving up on somebody? Then you remember the motivation for this church discipline. Why do we do this? Paul answers in verse 5, he says, Deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. In other words, do this. Do church discipline. Even this step of removing a member from the church in hopes that this man will be saved, that he will see the end of his sin in himself and turn back to Christ. This is why we do the tough work of gently confronting one another in sin. We do it out of hope for others. Even as we sometimes have to remove a member from the church for unrepentant sin, we don't do that in any sense of giving up on that person, but as to say, we love you, and we're doing this in hope that you will eventually repent, and we're waiting for you, patiently waiting, lovingly waiting for when that occurs. Love hopes all things. Love hopes for all things. It never loses hope. Love endures all things. Do you endure trials with others? This really just sums up the whole passage, starting with patience and ending with the success, uh, succession of this phrase. Love bears all things, believes and hopes, and in the middle of it all, endures. Because as verse 8 says right after this, love never ends. It never ends. So let me say it, and then we'll say it again together. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Let's say it. Let's say it together or try to. Um, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So this is a very penetrating passage, isn't it? It has been suggested that, you know, a helpful exercise here is to replace the word love with your name in this passage and, and, and see how true it is. For example, you know, Jed is patient and kind. Jed does not envy or boast. He is not arrogant or rude and so on. You might try it. I, I know when I try it, I can tell you that uh, it's con- extremely convicting and humbling because there are so many ways, so many ways that I am not loving. And I, but I want this kind of love to mark my life and mark your life and mark the life of this church. So many of these descriptions of love imply that it's, that it's not easy. The implications of, of chapter 13 are clear. People can be irritating and people will do wrong to you and to others and people will offend you. People will have things that you want and you'll have things that they want. So how do we love one another then? 
If you look back at this passage, and there's only, there's only one name, right? There's only one name that you can insert for love in this passage, be completely true, and that is the name of Jesus Christ. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus Christ does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or rude. Jesus does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoices with truth. Jesus bears all things. Jesus believes all things. Jesus hopes all things. Jesus endures all things. So as we close out, I want to give you a definition of love, of of Christ-driven, Christ-exalting, Christ-enabling love. What is this definition of Christian love? Well, simply summarized, it's to love, or love is to be towards others the way God is to, to us in Christ. The reason love is supreme over spiritual gifts and the reason love is greater even than faith and hope and the reason love never ends is because love characterizes the very nature of God himself. 1 John 4, 16 says, God is love. So how should we show love like this? Well, first and foremost, before anything else, we have to receive this kind of love. We have to receive the love of Christ Jesus. If you look back at this passage, you'll realize This is how God in Christ is towards us. Even the first two characteristics, right? Love is patient and kind. Those two descriptions in in five simple words summarizes God's approach towards men. He is patient with us. God is patient with you, with me. He is kind towards you and me. Though we have sinned, He is patient. He shows His kindness to us in the cross. Talk about bearing all things. He bore our sins. He carried our sorrows and was struck for our iniquities. He keeps no record of wrongs. I urge you to receive his love if you have not. And as we receive his love, we're to reflect his love to others. The love of God is a fountain from which all other love flows. If God is patient with us, rebellious sinners that we are, how much more should we be patient with others? If Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, how can we boast in anything? Our selfless love for others is simply a reflection of God's sacrificial love for us. So, this leads to the next question. What is distinctive about Christian love? Many times, this passage uh, is read as almost a hymn or an ode or to love in general, but there's nothing general about this kind of love. This love is different from any kind of love. This love, this kind of love described in chapter 13, is distinct from every other definition of love that this world might offer. This is truly distinctive Christian love. So what makes this distinct? Well, first, Christian love is exemplified in the cross of Christ. 1 John 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for each other. The perfect example of love is is the cross of Christ, where the patience and kindness of God came to completion in the sacrifice of his son. Not for his friends, but for his enemies. Romans 5 makes this clear. Very rarely will anybody die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the distinction of Christian love 
that sets it apart from every other kind of worldly love that there is. Take, for example, a young man who looks at his wife and says, I love you. At least, in part, he's reflecting the reality that he finds his wife lovely. There is something about her in her that compels love from him. But Christian love is totally different because it is not based at all on the loveliness of another. When the Bible says in John 3.16, God so loved the world, it's not because the world is so lovely that God can't help but love it. On the contrary, God loves a world that is unlovable. A, a, a world that has turned away from Him again and again. God so loved an unlovely world that He gave His only Son to die for the sins of the unlovely, undeserving men and women. So you've got to see the distinction of Christian love here. It is based on the mercy found in the lover, not in the merit of the beloved. There's nothing in the world like that. There's no kind of love in the world like that. It is based on the mercy of the lover, not on the merit of the beloved. So what is the mark of our community with one another in this church? Um, not who deserves to be, to be loved, not those who are most lovely, but those who are hardest to love, those who are least lovely. This is where the distinct love of Christ is most clear in the church. Christian love is exemplified in the cross. It is based on the mercy of the lover and not the merit of the beloved. The second distinction in Christian love is it's empowered by the Spirit of Christ. Love like this, love like Christ, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the Christian. We don't have to look long and hard at this description of love to realize that these things are fundamentally not in our nature. Our nature is prone to be impatient and unkind and we're easily irritated and we're prone to consider ourselves over others every hour of the day. This is where we realize that as Christians, Christian love is not natural but supernatural. This passage drives us not to ourselves but to, to Christ. You think about your enemies or the people that you have hurt or have hurt, hurt you in this life and people that have offended and abused you or harmed or betrayed you, and you think, how can I love them? I have nothing in me that wants to love them. And this is where you realize that the source of your love for others cannot be found in yourself. It can only be found in Christ, in the spirit of the one who gave his life for those who sinned against him. This is the only source of selfish love. Sorry. This is the only source of selfless love for sinful people around you. Christian love is empowered by the Spirit of Christ. And finally, this is the biggest one. Christian love is fixated on the return of Christ. Christian love is fixated on the return of Christ. The vision the Bible gives us of heaven is a place of perfect love. The reason it will be a place of perfect love is because our experience of God's love will be perfect. No longer strained or marred, by the sins in our life. As a result of being perfectly reconciled to him, we will be perfectly reconciled to each other. John Newton, the author of uh, Amazing Grace, he talked about this controversy that we sometimes have with other Christians in this life and how to deal with it and to deal with a person that even might oppose you in error. And he points forward to the hope that one day that every person who you might be tempted to see as an enemy will one day as a Christian brother or sister, will be a completely close friend. He writes this, Remember that the Lord loves him 
and bears with him. Therefore, you must not despise him or treat him harshly. The Lord bears with you likewise and expects that you should show tenderness to others from a sense of the much forgiveness you need yourself. In a little while, you will meet in heaven. He will then be dearer to you than the nearest friend you have upon earth is to you now. Anticipate that period in your thoughts. And though you may find it necessary to oppose his errors, view him personally as a kindred soul with whom you are to be happy in Christ forever. There is coming a day when every fellow uh, Christian, every follower of Christ will be personally reconciled to Christ and then to one another. So we look forward to that day and we live in light of that day. Jonathan Edwards said, uh, somebody asked him, what makes the church on earth look most like heaven and eternity? And his answer was simply love. It's love. D.A. Carson similarly, he said, the greatest evidence that heaven has invaded our sphere, that the spirit has been poured out upon us, that we are citizens of a kingdom not yet consummated is Christian love. So what is distinctive about Christian love? It can't help but to serve others in the present because it can't wait to see what Christ does in the future. I'm thankful that there is love in this place. I'm thankful that um, we're able to come together and uh, I pray that we, we, we don't focus on each other's flaws and, and, we, and we see with a very humble spirit um, where, what we really are and, and uh, we take the opportunity to ask for forgiveness and, and, and to have the Lord's love just wash over each and every one of us and then extend that love to our fellow believers here, fellow brothers and sisters. I'm thankful for God's love and kindness and I, I pray that um, you got something out of this this morning. Let me say this one last time. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this uh, chapter on love. Lord, uh, I thank you for uh, the revelation that comes through reading it and through studying it, Lord, that um, even in our brokenness, we know that your righteousness is is what we need. Your spirit is what we need, that we can... uh, We know that there's nothing inside of us that can fulfill these verses. It can only be you, Heavenly Father, by way of your Spirit. Be with us now. Be with us this week, Lord. May we seek to love others. May may we know your love. May you pour your love out on us. May it be undeniable. May May we rest in your love. May we not be clanging gongs or banging cymbals. Lord, may we... May we not just be going through the motions, but may we be actively loving others in the way that you love us, Lord. May we love you first and love others and, and, and seek to deny ourselves and die to self, Lord. We ask all these things in your name, Jesus, the name above all names. Amen.